yes, there may be long-term side effects from not from this vaccine. But if we're only giving you this much of the genetic material in this vaccine from the virus, and we're worried that there may be some long-term side effects, couldn't you make the argument that if we gave you the whole sequence, meaning the whole virus's DNA or RNA, I'm sorry, couldn't we make the argument we don't know the long-term side effects of that? Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things. Goes, which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Bakhtari, MD, Dr. Bakhtari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Bakhtari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. Hi, welcome back to Bakhtari MD. I'm Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. And today we're going to be talking about the six things you wish you knew about this pandemic before the pandemic occurred. The first thing I want to talk to you about is, you know, what is a virus? I think this pandemic has brought, of course, the familiarity with viruses to the forefront in ways that maybe people had never thought about before. But do we really understand what a virus is? And I find that a lot of people think a virus is like a germ or you know, some sort of bacteria that's a little different. But a virus is really a class of thing, I'm not calling it a living thing on purpose, that is really in, in a no man's land of things. Because it's not actually a true living thing by any definition that even a layperson would consider living. I mean, for most of us, we think of a living thing as something that might be able to, you know, create its own energy, you know, it's use its own nutrients, replicate, use its own machinery to do the the activities that it would need to do on a daily basis. And a virus can't do any of that. A virus can't store energy, it can't make energy, it can't make proteins, it can't even replicate by itself. So it really is just a genetic, a piece of genetic material, usually wrapped in a piece of protein. And that's really all it is, which really begs to, begs the question of how viruses even evolved, because we know that if we got rid of all organisms in the world today, if we got rid of every human, every animal, every plant, and every bacteria, viruses would cease to exist. Because the only way viruses can exist as they're jumping between one host to another is to find another host. Because if they can't find another host, they can't go on. They don't have the machinery to live. So by definition, they're the ultimate parasite. They have to be involved or attached or inside of another host. Now, there can be brief periods where it's jumping from host to host. But if it can't find a host, it dies. So what are viruses really? Well, viruses are literally a strand of genetic material, either DNA or RNA, one, one, or, one or the other, can't be both that's wrapped up for the most part in a protein 
They either look like spheres or they look like rods. But either way, they go from their particular organism they like to infect from one to another. And then once they get inside that organism, they use the machinery of the organism to do all the activities of daily life that any cell would have to do, which is make energy, store energy, make proteins, replicate their genetic material, and replicate proteins they need to do everything that they're doing. So what viruses do is they find their way into a cell of either a mammal, an animal, a human, or a plant, or a bacteria, and they inject their genetic material into them. That genetic material then uses the host's own machinery to create all the things it needs. It cr helps create all the energy it needs. It helps replicate. And it's interesting, even when it replicates its own DNA, it doesn't use the building blocks, which are called nucleic acid, that it brought itself. It actually uses the host nucleic acids to create new DNA. So the new virus that's being created when a virus replicates is actually using building blocks from the host cell to create the new virus. In essence, a virus that has replicated, let's say inside of a human being, is using human parts to create the new virus. It, that's mind-blowing if you really think about it. I think those are the two things that are really mind-blowing. The, the, the things that you need to really grapple with is we're talking about a sort of in-between living and non-living thing, which has just a piece of genetic material wrapped in a protein. And somehow it has learned to jump from its favorite host to host, inoculate itself into the cells of the host, and then take over all of the machinery of that host cell to live and replicate. And all the new viruses, for example, that are replicated in, in the example I gave are really actually building blocks that it stole from its host. So you could make the argument that, you know, once a virus replicates, it's actually part human because it's taking building blocks that it got from the human cell that it infected. So I, I think, you know, as we look at the pandemic, I think it's really important to understand you know, just how difficult of a problem viruses can be. You know, we all are, we're all familiar with measles, mumps, and rubella, and all the childhood viruses that, you know, we're familiar with that we have vaccines for. And it also tells you that, you know, these viruses are very, very ingenious. And this is probably not the last virus we've, we're going to have to deal with. When we look at viruses, we have to understand the nature of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a very small particle that's not actually alive, but it wants to be alive and only becomes alive once it infects the host that it's going after. Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about is a, is a question I get all the time. You know, for many of us who've been fighting this fight during the pandemic, the issue is, you know, why now? Where did this come from? You know, we haven't had a pandemic for 100 years, and why all of a sudden this comes out of the blue? Well, part of it is also that this virus, the coronavirus, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, has been around in some version for many, many, many years. The coronavirus is one of the most common causes of the common cold we know of. So this virus with its spike is nothing new and 
almost all of us have been infected with a coronavirus multiple times, uh, sometimes even twice within one year. And so this is not a new virus. So, you know, what, what happened? I think the interesting thing about it is the coronavirus normally causes mild or maybe even asymptomatic disease. Rarely will it cause a severe cold, but you know, people get, you know, colds that are worse than others, but that's about it. In terms of, in, in terms of causing severe disease or death, basically, you know, minimal to none. But somewhere along the way, this coronavirus adapted and what became more infectious and became more deadly. Now, the exact biology or virology of that, you know, is still being explored. Why is the coronavirus more contagious? Why is it more lethal? Uh, that is being played out. I mean, some speculation, for example, is that it's more infectious because the spike protein, when it binds to ACE2 receptor inhibitors on your cells, that binding is now better and it's easier for the virus to bind to your cells. And why it causes disease more than the original coronavirus, you know, is still unclear. It may be that when it binds to your cells, the immune response to that binding may be different than in the old. However you get there, it's a much more lethal and much more contagious form of coronavirus. I think the interesting things that, you know, we're going to find out in the next 6, 12 months and beyond is why is it more contagious than the other types of coronavirus? And why does it cause more severe disease and, and death? And that research is ongoing. I think it's certainly going to be related to the body. Some of it is going to be related to the body's Im immune response to this version of the coronavirus. Uh, but I think in the next six to 12 months, we're gonna be getting some of those answers. So, you know, the next thing I wanna talk about uh, is the COVID-19 vaccines that are out. The most interesting class of the COVID-19 vaccines, which I think I've brought up in other conversations, is the mRNA technology. Now, this technology really has never been tried in a vaccine before. It's been sitting around and available for, let's say, 10 years or so, but I think nobody had tried this as a vaccine, even though, in, in theory, you know, there could have been a case made for it. My personal guess is the reason why it was never moved forward is I would have guessed that there that one of the barrier was that there was a sense that there would be some resistance to this new class of vaccines, meaning that people might in theory object to taking a small piece of the genetic code of the virus that codes for the spike protein and putting it in a little soap bubble and injecting it into you, you know, it kind of, if you're not, if you don't fully understand it, it almost sounds like genetic therapy maybe. And I think that might've been a hard sell. That's my own speculation because obviously as quickly as this vaccine was created, almost in 48 hours after, you know, Moderna and Pfizer got the genetic sequence from the original virus, uh, obviously other vaccines could have been developed in the last 10 years. Uh, what's probably held it back was this whole idea is, can we 
get past the concept of a vaccine being created from pure just genetic material, even though it's only coats for the, you know, the surface protein of it, could we get past the, the, the barriers that would be there just socially and otherwise? And I think it took this pandemic, it took a, a metaphoric gun to the head where, you know, all other forms of vaccines in the past had taken much longer to develop, you know, the fastest any vaccine was ever created was four years, but on average five to 10 years. Obviously, that, that wasn't really an option. And in many ways, this sort of metaphoric gun to the head may have contributed to mRNA technology for, for vaccines coming out in ways that couldn't have happened before. And in the long run, even though, you know, over 600,000 people have died in the United States and many more worldwide, in the long run, wouldn't it be interesting if this mRNA technology saved millions of lives in other diseases and, and, and with other vaccines and anti-cancer therapy and other things that could be used for in the decades to come? The real silver lining could be that this tragedy, this pandemic, may have indirectly saved millions and millions and millions of lives in the future. If you want to put a silver lining to it, that's a potential silver lining. And the mRNA technology, the ability to take the genetic material for a protein and inject it to you and have your own body create that protein, and then you create antibodies towards it, protein can be potentially used to fight cancer cells. For example, if there's cancer cells that express a certain unique protein that's not seen anywhere else in your body, if we can take the genetic sequence of that and put that in a vaccine and inject it into you and have you essentially create that protein in your bloodstream and then have your bodies create antibodies towards it, then those antibodies would attack potentially the cancer cells. That may sound like science fiction, but that is exactly you know, what we're looking at. So in the long run, this tragedy may produce a lot of advances. Just like you know, the World War II and the Korean War uh, helped usher in tons of new medical advances, brought in the ICU, brought in the advent of trauma care, brought in the advent of life support, all of that was from the tragedy of those wars. And so it's ironic that sometimes out of these, you know, very painful and unbearable tra tragedies that we, we are able to advance like that. The other interesting thing about this mRNA technology is, you know, when it was first introduced, you know, last spring, I think that as predicted, there was a sense of uh, apprehension about using a vaccine that, you know, injected genetic material into you. And it's interesting how th things have evolved. And now that the vaccine is out, and now that hundreds of millions of people have gotten the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, now we understand how, at least on, in, on some level, pe people view that now as the better vaccine in many quarters, or the one with less side effects or less, less this or that. So we've actually kind of within 12 months evolved from, from many people being very concerned about those vaccines 
to actually on some for some people being the preferred vaccine you know in relationship to the mrna technology one of the most interesting feedback i get from some people who have reservations is while admitting that the mrna technology certainly works the clinical trials work and now we have the world's biggest clinical trial over 100 million americans you know, with two doses. We know that it prevents disease, it prevents the SARS-CoV-2 virus from causing disease in the vast majority of people. And what's interesting is that one of the pushback often you hear is, well, we don't know what the long-term side effects are. And that is true. But I'd like to do, I'd like to approach it a different way. You may, you may make that argument, someone can make that argument, we don't know what the side effects long-term are. What are the side effects of injecting a small piece of RNA that codes for the spike protein into an unsuspecting person's arm? What what are the side effects long-term? We don't have the answer. We don't know what they are. I mean, we can surmise that it's a piece of genetic material. It forces your body to create the spike protein and you create antibodies towards it. But we don't know what the long-term side effects are. And I hear that argument. It's theoretical, but of course it's possible. There could be long-term side effects. But the way I kind of look at it is, well, yes, there may be long-term side effects from from this vaccine. But if we're only giving you this much of the genetic material in this vaccine from the virus, and we're worried that there may be some long-term side effects, couldn't you make the argument that if we gave you the whole sequence, meaning the whole virus's DNA or RNA, I'm sorry, couldn't we make the argument we don't know the long-term side effects of that? But taking all comers, would you prefer to have this much of the genetic sequence injected into you? Or would you would like to have this much of the genetic sequence injected into you? And if your concern is long-term side effects, couldn't you make the argument that it probably would be more dangerous if you got all the genetic material injected into you. Now you can say, well, no, I'm worried about the preservatives in the vaccine. Okay, I get all that. But if you if the concept is I'm just worried about having genetic material, and by the way, the vaccine the virus replicates billions of times and has not just one copy of genetic material that's going to be injected to you, millions and billions of copies. So when you look at it as a load or as an amount and how big the sequence is, if you're worried about long-term side effects, we should be equally worried about long-term side effects of getting the whole virus, which then takes it to the next level. If you're really worried, you know, you're worried that you may have long-term effects from the whole virus, and you're also worried about having long-term effects of having a small piece of, of the of the virus RNA, then the only argument you can make is, well, I choose not to have either one. I choose not to have the vaccine and I choose not to have the disease, right? That, that would be the logical next argument. I choose to have neither. But that may not be what's happening in reality. If we make the assumption that one-third of all Americans have already had the coronavirus infection, if we can make that assumption, I don't know how confident someone would be. If one out of three people have already gotten an infection, 
I think it's a fair bet to say if you don't get the infection, I mean, if you don't get the vaccine, you hurt high odds. One out of three is high odds, and that increases with time that you're going to be you're going to be meeting the virus anyway. And so, if you view it not as a choice of three things, but if you view it as a binary choice, which is I'm either going to get the vaccine, and granted, some people who get the vaccine also get the infection, but less for the sake of this conversation, make it binary. I'm either going to get the vaccine or I'm going to get the infection, statistically. And you know, a lot of people say, "Well, how do you come up with one third of Americans?" It's you know, the, the documented cases are you know, 30, 40 million. But even the CDC in January said that they thought there was 83 million cases of COVID infections in the United States, documented and undocumented. Remember, for every documented infection, there's a multiple of undocumented, whether you think that's two, three, four times, whatever you think it is, it's a multiple. So if we have 35 million cases and you have, you know, two, three, four times as many undocumented cases, we're talking close to one third of the U.S. population already being infected. But let's say you believe that math for a second. Let's just say you believe it, that one third have gotten it. When you're faced with the choice of the side effects, quote unquote, from the vaccine, you have to balance that versus the side effect, both short short term and long term, from getting the disease. And the more binary the decision is, the more Obviously, a vaccine seems to be more preferable, right? Because you can say, I don't know the long-term side effects of the vaccine, but as, we, as we've seen with the long haulers and other people with long-term side effects from having the virus, you don't know what the long-term side effect of, of having the whole virus is either. I mean, we have a, we're starting to get a sense of it, and it's not zero, so really you... Ha- if you the more binary you make it, the the more difficult it becomes to say, I don't want the vaccine because I'm worried about the long term side effects. Well, next thing you know, um, I want to talk about that we sort of discovered during the pandemic is you know h- how this virus is actually transmitted. I think initially there was a sense that the virus, of course, was transmitted by by people coughing and talking and, and sneezing, meaning aerosolized spread. But I think there was also a sense that it w- could be transmitted through contacts with surfaces, meaning someone coughs on a surface and then someone touches a surface. And I think a lot of that was a big concern in the early part of the pandemic where people were wiping down groceries and everything else. But you know, one of the things that evolved as as time went on is we realized that the aerosolized uh, mode was the much bigger mode of transmission. And that became even more evident when we realized how very few cases occurred outside. And of course, the reason for that is not that people don't aerosolize the virus when they're outside. Obviously, the the virus particles come out whether you're indoors or outdoors, but what happens to it? And there we really are comparing outdoor ventilation with indoor ventilation. Even if someone sneezes, coughs, or talks, what happens both to the initial projectile aerosol aerosol droplets, 
or to just sort of the misty aerosol that just floats in the air. What happens to that? Well, outdoors, you can imagine, even in a relatively mild, you know, windy day, not even or super windy, you know, there's always some sort of current usually that will, you know, whisk some of that away and prevent, you know, transmission. Now, obviously, if there's a big group of people outdoors and huddled together, some of that may not apply. But our traditional outdoor interaction, which is, you know, several feet away, but then you have a current or a wind coming by, dramatically reduces the, the transmission rate. Now, indoors, though, that becomes a problem. Indoors, especially when you look at most indoor work environments, uh, you know, and look at the transition over the last 30, 40 years to, you know, develop indoor workspaces, for example, that are more energy efficient, more airtight, uh, less air circulation. All of that contributes to environments where there is poor or minimal air circulation. You know, sometimes only once or two, you know, the air exchange is only once or twice an hour. And that helps with the SARS-CoV-2 virus and its ability to spread. That lack of air circulation is probably one of the biggest contributor to indoor transmission. When you look at people, you know, moving away from individualized office and more of a sort of a bullpen set up within a building that has minimal air circulation and, you know, not a good filtering system when that air circulation, when the air is recycled. Uh, that's really a recipe for, you know, helping the, the virus spread. So there's really two ways to look at it. One, as we make buildings tighter and more energy efficient, meaning, you know, minimize the amount of outside air coming in, that becomes a problem. And for buildings who have not installed great filtration systems, so when they do recirculate the air, and by that I mean a really aggressive uh, circulation system that's able to circulate, that's supposed to filter, that can filter um, virus particles, then you can have a situation where a office environment can be very deadly if there are people walking around uh, with active upper respiratory infections like the, the COVID-19 virus. So our dilemma then really is, you know, if we are going to try to make indoor spaces more energy efficient and more tighter and more sealed, then we also then have to consider the counterbalance of what are we going to do to deal with upper respiratory pathogens. One obviously is to increase the air circulation and, and, and also install much better filters, a high grade filter which uh, filters out virus particles. And we may have to balance our need to, for energy efficiency by doing the, some of these countermeasures um, if we want to address situations that just happened during this pandemic. So something to think about, and even inside your, uh, your house, the fact that a lot of people in their zeal to be energy efficient, you know, never open doors, never open windows, that's a balancing act. And, you know, um, if, if you really, you know, especially in the height of the pandemic, you know, 
letting your house ventilate would help air exchange. And I think uh, that's sort of counterintuitive to what a lot of people have been doing the last 10, 20, 30 years, which is, you know, insulating, airtight, tight windows, tight doors, never leave anything open because, uh, you know, it's going to make your air conditioning bill go up, your heating bill go up. And so we have to balance those concerns versus getting good. Now, even inside the homes, things like getting a HIPAA filter or other things that do a better job of filtration can circumvent some of that. And I think this is one of the one of the things this pandemic has taught us, that this idea to either improve indoor ventilation and or indoor filtration to mitigate not only for this, but potentially for other respiratory viruses. Next thing I want to talk about are masks. Obviously, this is a a area that has had a lot of debate, but let's talk about masks and this pandemic. Well, the first thing we want to talk about is, you know, do masks work in general? And I think the overall answer to that is yes, they do. And the main way that masks work during this COVID-19 pandemic is it really protects someone who is sick from, you know, aerosolizing a lot of viral particles into the room. To that extent, it works and it doesn't work. So obviously anything that would be large projectiles, especially from coughing or sneezing, or even talking loudly, the mask may catch some of it. But unless you're wearing an N95 mask, most of the surgical masks have leaks and they themselves don't fully prevent the virus from penetrating it. So I think the you know the typical surgical masks or cloth masks that we see most people wear definitely, definitely make a difference. And in conjunction with social distancing and in conjunction with uh, the other person may be wearing a mask and we're having barriers, all of that, including you know being outside, not inside, or having more ventilation inside, all of those things work together to lower the chances of of an infectious person infecting someone else. So having said that, now that vaccines have been around since December, the question is, if you're vaccinated, do you need to wear a mask, indoors or outdoors? And that answer is complicated because the real answer is, and it was the answer probably in January or February, is if you have gotten both doses of the vaccine, you are at very little chance of catching the disease. And if you, and even if you do, the 4 or 5% with Moderna and Pfizer, the chances of it being a severe disease are pretty small. So practically speaking, you're, very, you're not at any risk to catching the disease. Again, this assumes a no new variants and assumes the immunity from the vaccines lasts long enough. But for the, for the time and, and space we're in currently, you technically don't need to wear a mask indoors or outdoors if you've been full, two weeks after a full vaccination. So the question then is, you know, why have we all been wearing a mask and why haven't we just asked the people who have not been vaccinated to wear a mask? I think the real issue is this is where the crossroads of making decisions for public health purposes versus for an individual. We as a society come up with all the rules and regulations to protect the public health. And individuals sacrifice that 
sacrifice some of their abilities or rights in the name of of protecting others and and in the name of public health. So we may ask a whole group of people, some who are vaccinated and don't need to wear a mask, to wear a mask because we cannot figure out who's been vaccinated and who hasn't. So we're going to make everyone wear a mask. Perfect example is maybe a month or two ago in most states, you know, if you wanted to even go into a restaurant or go into a grocery store, you had to wear a mask. I think the public health reason was, well, we can't figure out who's walking into a Walmart and which one's been vaccinated, which one isn't. And if we just make it whoever's been vaccinated uh, doesn't need to wear a mask, well, it may be that some unvaccinated people are going to walk in thinking that people will assume that they were vaccinated and so they don't have to wear a mask. So since we can't sort out who should, who has and hasn't been vaccinated, there was a time where we said, fine. So on balance to protect all the people who have not been vaccinated, we're going to force everyone to wear a mask. And this way, we're sure that unvaccinated people are wearing a mask. Now, when the vaccinated people were a small minority of the population, that made a lot of sense. And when the vaccine wasn't available to the majority of the population. What happened, I think, recently, as more and more people in the United States were fully vaccinated, and as more and more people who got the disease have immunity, you're left with a minority of people now, potentially, that haven't gotten the disease or gotten the vaccines. So now we're asking the majority of people to wear a mask so we can protect a minority of people. And and that even made sense when the vaccine wasn't available to everyone. Because it was the one third that didn't have the vaccine or had the infection, it wasn't their fault. They weren't offered the vaccine. So we as a society are going to protect that one third because through no fault of theirs, they're unvaccinated and they haven't gotten the disease. So we need to protect them. So we're going to force everybody to wear a mask to protect them. But then the next step comes, okay, so the majority of people have either had the vaccine or have been infected. But there's a group of people who haven't had the vaccine, but they've been offered the vaccine. They haven't gotten it. They're about to get it, however you get there. And I think that's where the equation starts to change, where at which point does public health policy have to to mitigate a group of people who simply haven't gotten the vaccine, maybe because they just think they're too young, it won't matter if they get the disease, or they don't think they're going to get the disease. So at which point are we going to make a whole society wear a mask, mandatory mask, to protect a small minority, not when we say small, because it'll be you know, a third of the country, but a minority of people who haven't gotten the vaccine or haven't gotten the disease. And whether that's 30, 40, even 50%, it's still a, a large group of people that are unprotected. But it doesn't have to be that way. They can go and get a vaccine in theory, unless, of course, there's you know, small cases of where you, you, know, you can't get the vaccine, but for the vast majority can't. So I think my reading of the, what the CDC's change and saying that vaccinated people don't have to wear masks is really a public policy decision because on an individual basis, anyone vaccinated even in January didn't need to wear a mask. We wore masks as a matter of public health policy 
to prevent the people who hadn't been vaccinated or gotten the disease. And we kept going until that became a small enough group. And also that group was offered the vaccine. So we, at a certain point, you know, if it's available and they choose not to get it, obviously we still need to do whatever we can to prevent it. But to ask everyone to wear a mask who's been vaccinated is at some point the CDC decided that the equation was tipping in the other direction and people didn't who were vaccinated didn't have to wear a mask. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbakhtarimd.com to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, BakhtariMD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. Also, please check out my website, jonathanbakhtarimd.com, where you can subscribe to my newsletter and get more information about healthcare. And take care and be well. <music>